Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, we are very honored to have as our guest... Juno Award winner Patricia Dahlquist, an extraordinary talent, a singer, actor, and dancer. She won a Juno Award for Most Promising Female Vocalist of the Year in 1976. She also studied theater, classical violin, and ballet. She's been an actor on numerous TV shows, has done a great deal of volunteer work over the years, and been a vocal coach and theater coach and teacher for decades. I've done shows myself with Patricia many times over the past almost 30 years now. I looked back and it's been almost that long, and I'm always proud to say that she's a friend of mine. So thanks for joining me today, Patricia. How are you? I am very well, and I'm really pleased to be with you today. My mother was a singer. She was a beautiful singer, and uh, she was um, actually studying voice as I was growing up, and I, I heard her sing, and I would end up doing a lot of singing with her, and she would do a lot of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan shows. She actually started theater companies all around the, the uh, Kootenai Valley. And uh, so that was my influence, was her being in theater and her singing. Yeah, nice. So musical theater. And so when did you decide that you might be able to make a career of that or decide that you sort of wanted to pursue that for a life? I actually didn't even decide. It just happened. It was it was like I never, ever thought that I would do anything else. So every step I took was in in pursuance of that, whether I was you know, being a server in a, in a restaurant in order to make money while I was going to university, um, going, going into the theater department. I loved theater. And then I did a musical theater show at university. And I decided then that that was one of the areas that I wanted to pursue was musical theater. As I was studying at, U, at university, I studied education and I studied theater. But as I was doing that, I was going out and singing in, in clubs. I, um, I belonged to a couple of groups um, that uh, performed at the Bunkhouse, which was an internationally known folk music um, club in downtown Vancouver. And, um, uh, and just being in those groups and singing all the time and rehearsing, we, one of my groups appeared on um, CBC, uh, CBC television early on. And uh, I just kept on that track. It, was, it wasn't even a decision. It was just I was good. So when I put myself in an, in an opportunity to do something, I usually got hired, which was really extraordinary. When looking back at it, um, it, just, it, it all fell together because that was my intention, was to just be in, in performance. People over the years asked me if I should change my name. And I said, no, I love my name. It's part of who I am, you know. I think the most active time in my career was when I was in Toronto. And uh, when I got into, um, became part of the CBS um, roster. And at the same time that I was doing that, I was doing television commercials and at the time that I that the hit really hit, 
um, I was the Jello lady in Canada. So I was doing Jello commercials, and I oh. remember the one lady running up to me on the street one day and saying, "Aren't you? Aren't you?" And I thought she was going to say Patricia Dahlquist, who has a hit song. She said, "Aren't you? Aren't you the Jello lady?" <laughs> I think before then I was with uh, Haygood Hardy and we did uh, um, concerts uh, across Canada. And uh, uh, my very first gig with him was at the New York Playboy Club. Um, Mm. And from then on, everything just really started to happen. I started doing cross country uh, car show, car reveal shows. And, and we kept doing concerts. We we had a long running uh, show, um, the show band, Hey Good Hardy show band in the, um, the the TD Center in downtown Toronto. And from then on, it just kept on rolling. Uh, I was definitely on a roll for about fifteen years in Toronto. Of course, it's pop music. I I can hear the musical in theater influence when I listen to it, but it's it's a pop record that was sort of geared towards that crowd of course with with your hit keep our love alive and you didn't really diverge from that too much right i mean it's 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 a genre album from what i can hear yeah yeah that's true yeah and pretty well stuck to pop um even a little touch of country rock a little bit of folk yeah. so it was a, a mixture so did you do the did you double your, your lead vocal sounds doubled in a few spots? Did you do that studio thing where you sing the part twice and then they layer it? Yeah, I would layer, I would, uh, I'd sing it and then they'd get the, the first, um, track, uh, the way they wanted it, the way we wanted it. And then I would sing to that. So I would double it. I wasn't a fan of doubling. I felt that it distanced me as a singer from the listener. I really preferred just having the solo voice be the solo voice so that there was more of an immediate connection with the, with the listener. I guess in a sense, I don't know whether it's a, it's a tag that you like, but being a one hit wonder, I mean, you basically had one hit song in your career, right? Yeah, that's right. And most people get zero hit songs in their career. (laughs) So, um, so the, the album kind of, you did it and then it, and it went away after that. You got your hit song. You got to do your tours. Yeah. And that was the extent of it for you. Did your did your record deal go away after the first album? Yes, they kept they they uh, um, released uh, several songs after that from the album. I think the second one they did was the ABBA Bang a Boomerang. Yeah. And um, it did it did moderately well, but certainly not like uh, Keep Our Love Alive. A, a lot of time was spent uh, with Haygood Hardy and with Tommy Hunter in the um, in the studios. So yeah. um, got it. I really got used to being in the studio, and of course, since then I've spent a lot of time in the studio with other singers as a vocal producer. Yeah. And I really enjoy the studio life. I must say. You were on CBC and then also Sesame Street. Is that right? Did you do something for Sesame Street? did an album for Sesame Street okay. called, called uh, Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird Go Camping in Canada. Oh, neat. And so what was yeah. your involvement in that? Did you sing the songs? It was almost like a little play, like yeah. these characters were in Canada. And so there was a little play and, and there were different characters. I sang, I think, a teacher or a mother. I can't remember what it was. 
um, and so there was this little play that happened, and yeah. I was I sang a lot of the songs on on the album. I got to work with Big Bird and Oscar, who were the same, who was the first same person. So, did you like touring and traveling? Did you like that part of the business? I always loved traveling, and I I, I liked actually going to different places. Um, I did a lot of the driving too. So I would be driving with the the guys in the back seat. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, no, I enjoyed that. I, I, I enjoyed every bit of it. I met you almost 30 years ago now. It would have been the early 90s, and you were doing this uh, stepping out shows yeah. where singers would come, and you would train them for, I think it was six weeks, right? And then we, you would hire us as the band, and we would come and play for them at the end of it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, how did that come about? Oh, well, that's interesting. It was in uh, Toronto. Um, in 1981, uh, a friend invited me to come to a class, which was the actual, the original stepping out class. Yeah. And I, I just fell in love with it. And, um, and so uh, she said, why don't you um, consider um, taking it on, you know, leading it? Because you've had all this experience and, and you've got the ability and um, I hummed and hawed a little bit and said, okay. So I took it on. I took on the class. And, of course, I made some changes. But I also went, when I went to New York, I had a chance to be part of a class that was the originator of the Stepping Out program. This uh, wonderful singer um, who was uh, a part of the Actors Institute in, in New York. Um, really encouraged me, and I had her come up to Toronto a couple of times to lead um, a, a shorter version of Stepping Out, like a, a weekend version of Stepping Out. And um, and it, I just took it from there. So from about 1982 in Toronto, I was doing Stepping Out every three months. So I'd, yeah. I'd do at least four of them a year. It's over six weeks. And uh, with lots of extra work for the, the students to work with whoever is the accompanist for the, for the show. I always, yeah. I always managed to have great musicians. The, the show at the end of, of the six weeks was always jam-packed um, with friends and family and, and wannabes. And, uh, and I just kept going. So wherever I was, I would, I would do this stepping out class. So yeah. it was Toronto. Then it was Vancouver, and then it went up to the Yukon, and yeah. then came back and started to do, again, the stepping out classes in, in Vancouver. So Ken Tobias is a Canadian icon best known for his string of 70s AM radio hits that remain in the hearts of everyone who has heard them. For over 50 years, he has basically done it all, touring, recording, producing. I was on stage since I've been four years old, yeah. and uh, so I was pretty strong. And I sang, sang and modeled clothing at uh, Zella Store when I was that age, and um, I was very aware of radio, especially right after the war, because uh, I was born in '45. So mm -hmm. you know, it was like when I was four to five years old, I was already listening to to people sing, and I heard all the great singers on the radio from Sinatra to you know. Uh, even Vera Lynn, who was saying from in, in England, and I actually, my voice, uh, uh, by singing uh, the female parts, always as a kid, I kind of went through that puberty voice change and kept my kept my uh, falsettos and so on and so forth and kept that voice. But it was radio. I mean, that, that did it for me. I was, you know. <laughs>
so I became a drummer later on, but that really wasn't it either. Uh, that was just a, a part of, of the musician inside yeah. me. And I'm really a guitar player. I remember my father didn't want me to play electric guitar because he thought that was a hoodlum thing. And uh, so uh, I, I, I took that acoustic guitar and I painted it like a Stratocaster, picked it up and started to play that, which would almost kill your fingers. Now, I still have that guitar. How did you meet Bill Medley and, and get a connection with him? Well, once I moved to Montreal in the summer season and the winter season from Sing Along, uh, I moved up there with a, and there was a guy who wanted to form a group. We, we formed a group called the Crystal Staircase. We, uh, we had a manager who also managed the bells, the five bells at the time. Okay. And his name was Kevin Hunter, and he managed me privately. And one day he said to me, uh, Hey, I got a, I, I know Bill Medley's in town, and I called him up and said, uh, I got this kid. You should hear him. And they said, If you can be down at, uh, at the Holiday Inn in five minutes, we'll listen to him. Well, so happened, I just lived up the street. Oh. And he came and got me, and we were running down the street. I had my guitar in my hand. We ran down the street into the place, up the stairs, and knocked on the door. And Michael Patterson, he was Bill Medley's keyboardist and did all the Righteous Brothers piano and directing. And uh, he uh, met us at the door, in, um, and he says, oh, you're here, so come on in. <laughs> so we went in, and I sang a couple of songs for him. Then he called up Billy, and and uh, Bill came over from his room and, hi, Kenny, how are you doing? <laughs> That's how, how he spoke to me. And uh, I said, hey, it's great to meet you, man. I'm, I'm a fan. And he said, play me some songs. And I play him a couple tunes. He then said, would you like to be a guest tonight at the uh, at the, uh, the Copa where I'm, I'm, I'm playing? God, you know, I was starstruck. And then yeah. next thing you know, we're there. And he stops the show and he puts the, the they put the spotlight on me and and I stand and they gets me to stand up and says here's an up upcoming new Canadian wow. music artist blah blah blah. I went what and I stood <laughs> up. I couldn't believe it. I was bathed in this. Yeah. And uh, right after the show, he asked me if I'd like to go to Hollywood. He produced a song. You're not even going to the fair. Did he? That, he didn't write correct. that. You wrote that song, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. And then he produced it for you. He always like asked me what I wanted to do. He wasn't a person who was trying to tell you what to do. He always asked me, and he said, "What do you? How do you see this recording?" And you know, he he also knew when you're in Hollywood, it's not who you are; it's who you're with. Yeah. And so he invited some of the Beach Boys down for the session and various peoples, and made it a, an event. And uh, and when he went somewhere, like he took me uh, to meet Rod McEwen, the great American poet, music poet, and uh, they got us into a Sinatra session where I could stand and watch what was going on. And uh, he he always treated me with great respect. So interesting, like the the time in L.A. You did you go down there with a publishing deal or a record deal? Like what? what I was went your... down with a, a publishing deal. Well, here they were. First of all, I went down as a man. They managed me and published. Uh, I I published with their company called uh, Medley Patterson and West. Bill Medley had a a, a a deal with Bell Records. That's where uh, you're not even going to fair came out on that label, um, and. Uh, that's kind of how it worked. When I first went down, is I got what they call an H two. H one is like a green card. The H two is like yeah. every six months you got to you know you got to make it better, uh, re, re, redo it, and then yeah. you can't perform. And so this was a problem with them because I couldn't perform because I was that's what I did. I sang and played my and 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 had to perform too, and I was still grooming uh, myself vocally and so on and so forth. And so uh, that's in one way was the reason why we didn't stay together is because uh, um, Michael Patterson, who was part of the management team, uh, wanted me to go out and play. And I said, geez, if I go out and play and I get caught, I'll never go back here again. 
I'll yeah. never get back in. And uh, when Bill found out about it, he was upset about it. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry. I, after I met, left Medley, I hated that. I had to move back to Canada. It seems to me you write a lot of reflective and kind of meaningful songs. You know, you write about social issues and life issues. So you're not chasing like bubblegum pop tunes, but then the, the record company would, would want whatever they can sell, right? How did you reconcile those things? That definitely was a problem with uh, that I had with record companies. I'll give you an example. When I was on Attic Records, even though I loved them, they were great to me and everything at Attic Records. On my very first album that I did with them, the Every Bit of Love album, we had four radio hits off that. And uh, that was pretty good. I mean, uh, for a guy to write those, to get those done. But I had a song on there called Save the Forest, which is probably around six minutes long. And ironically, that's what people came to see my show. They liked that, one of those tunes. They liked to hear because I had a really rocking band. And then I do my hits, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. And um, they were upset. They said, why did you put that on the record? And I said, hey, guys, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm an artist. I believe in stuff. Yeah. And uh, and I write about it, you know, but I think my problem was is and problem. I was a songwriter first and uh, not an artist first. And like if you listen to James Taylor, if you listen to certain people, they do. You can kind of bag them uh, in, in, in a certain place. This is how they do their thing yeah. with me as a songwriter. I was all over the place. I was writing some jazz, writing some blues, writing some some pop uh, and some folk and some country and, and um, wherever I could go. It just, oh, I think I'm going to go there and try that, yeah. you know, and um, and so that's part of the problem. So on the records, they couldn't. There were all kinds of different songs, and um, even though I tried to record them with the similarity, you know, and uh, same, you know, with the uh, instrumentation and so on, but you know, uh, it it just uh, that's what happened. And so uh, you know, I think that's probably one of the reasons I didn't have a, a great. I mean, I had a pretty good career. I don't. I'm not putting it down, but I didn't have a lot of big hits. You know, I had I had some good radio hits in Canada, and uh, I wrote a song that sold four million records. That's fine, and I had lots of people record my songs, and I'm happy about that that they did. But um, uh, I think that's that's what happened, and because I'm a songwriter, and I just even now, I mean, I've got about twenty or twenty five songs in the can that probably nobody will ever hear. But one one wonderful thing about it is that no one tells me what to do. I got a comeuppance when I was with the Colbert Corporation. When I was there, when Stay Well became a hit, now they didn't do anything. I brought that in with me. One day I said to the uh, guy who was ahead of the, uh, the publishing department, his name was Eddie Ray, and he was like, he used to own Imperial Records with Fats Domino and those guys. Hmm. And uh, he said, here, come here, come with me, kid. And he took me into a room. And he closed the door. He says, now, you don't, you don't understand what's going on here. I said, no, why? I said, because I said, Stay While was a hit. Don't you run that to other people? Don't you other people? You try to get other people to record it while it's a hit? Like, uh, for example, uh, Elvis Presley recorded Snowbird. Yeah. And he, got a, he, got, he sold a million records. That's how, how you do it. And he said, well, listen. He said, you know, in business, he says, uh, some people have two companies. One company does really well. The other company doesn't. And they use the company that doesn't do well as a write-off for the good, the company that does well. So they can use it for tax purposes. I said, yeah. He said, well, that's what this company is about. I said, what? He said, yeah. He yeah. says, you know, they're, they were, they were kind of, he said, they were kind of embarrassed that you got the hit because they brought money came in to that company. And I went, oh. Now, I know that probably because they were so big, if I had stayed with them longer, maybe they would have done something with me because they were affiliated with the um, Sonny and Cher show. They had several guys that were that that they were managed uh, and that were performing 
on those shows and so they're big, becoming big stars and uh, but it was more showbiz it really wasn't my scene that's when i eventually said i got my brother in and we asked him to leave and of course they said no anyway so i told my brother said let's get let's go in between that time period it was like living the, the life of amazing life i mean i was i i had movie actor friends and uh, you know, the, the, even the movie te- uh, Billy Jack. I mean, I know all the guys in the band, and they were doing a Canadian song called "One Tin Soldier," and I used to hang around with them. I, I you know, hung around with. Uh, I met Yul Brenner, and and uh, you know, oh, cool. went out with Miss Miss Beetle from Little House in the Prairie. I, you know, it goes on and on. I'm not name dropping. I'm just saying. And uh, it was I was in my prime, and I recorded with the you know, with the uh, Wrecking Crew and. And, you know, it's just, I mean, just for the, it's not all about, it's not all about the reasons that you're there. I mean, what brought you there is one thing, but the karma of it, why you're there, what you're learning, how's it, and I've found a spiritual life there and, and which I've continued with for over 50 Mm -hmm. years. And he came as best known for his iconic and timeless hits like Baby I Love You and Sugar Sugar and Rock Me Gently. And he has a very impressive list of accomplishments from over 50 plus years in the spotlight. So thanks for joining me today, Andy. How are you? I'm doing great. I really, really am. It's, it's great to talk to you. You know, you were so young when you got started, so I was going to ask you about your musical background, but really it was just an interest, more of an interest in music, it seems to me. And you tried the different instruments and had some affinity to that. I think I I came at it from an unorthodox way. Uh, Growing up in Montreal, um, we obviously had, you know, French radio and English radio. And I think when um, I got a transistor radio, that opened my world to WABC in New York. The radio station, uh, that and KBW, uh, WKBW in Buffalo, where for some reason or other, the frequency was like really, really strong. And, and I heard American music and uh, it wasn't so much the music, but it's how they spoke about the artists mm-hmm. and they're going to be in town and they're going to be doing this and doing that. And, and I, a kid that grew up in a tenement, so I had a dream to do this, but I didn't know how to do it. I just, you know, knew eventually that I had to, go to New York city. And, um, so I went on a dream. I went on this, this musical movie reel I had in my, in my head. And, uh, that's how I got there. You know, it's almost a fantasy world, but it was really kind of the world that, that became a reality for me. You're a, a, an exception because for every person who's successful, like you were, there's countless people who would have went down, there were stars in their eyes looking for a pot of gold and, and never found it. And for some reason, the stars aligned for you and you found it. So that speaks well of you. Nothing is a guarantee. I think the important thing is, what do you believe? What do you believe in your heart and soul? And, um, and if you believe it, someone will show up and, and help you construct your dream. But I could never have done it on my own. There were so many people that, that helped me along the way. I, I totally, totally believe that um, I could live my life and my world in an environment that was filled with the dark side. Yeah. I really feel that um, it's really kind of been a blessed journey. You know, there were, there were times along the way that could have gotten in big trouble. You could have signed with the wrong people. But hey, man, I told you, I, I, 
I've told a lot of people that I, I have put two words, adjectives, in front of my name as I look back. Lucky and blessed. To be clear and to be precise is, uh, I think, something that was a part of me all along. So, uh, you know, you never try to cheat anybody. You never try to get ahead of the line. You, I never was envious still never envious of anyone who's had huge success. I, I never think in those terms. You do what you do, and in God's graces, it works. And the times that you thought you had the best song in the world, n- no one ever heard it. It's okay. You got in with Jeff Berry, and then you did How Did We Ever Get This Way? And you had some success with that. He signed you to his Steed label, and then you got some ranking, I think, at number 21 on that, right? That put you on the map, that song? Yeah, it, it was like really strange, you know. Um, there were three music magazines at the time, Billboard, Cashbox, and magazine called Record World. So if I was number 21 on one magazine, but 19 on another one and 13 on the other, you know, you walk around saying, well, I got number 13. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but eventually, eventually, I mean, the only way that that you can win that roll of the dice is to be number one on all of them, yeah. you know, which I was lucky enough to be yes. there twice. In the Brill building, there, there was this great adage that said, you are only as good as your last two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, there you go. So... It's nothing is promised, nothing is guaranteed. It's just this moment. And it's really kind of how I've always seen my life. I've lived every day to its fullest, or if it's not to its fullest, I've lived that day the way I felt like living that day. In New York, I mean, it wasn't all unicorns and rainbows too, right? You had some lean years there. I mean, you got some real success, I guess, in 69 when you got Baby I Love You came out. That was your first really major, so I guess, worldwide hit. But you had some lean years in there too, right? Yeah, but you know what? I, I was excited about the fact that I could go to the Brill Building every day and uh, be in, in Jeff Barry's office, whether he was there or not, and be around music and be around creative people and going to their, their demo sessions and, and all of that. So to me, that was my world. Yeah. I just loved, and I still love being in the studio. I still love that environment yeah. of trying to make the best record you can around the song that you, that you like. Uh, I was thankful that, that I was able to you know, use Jeff's office and, when we wrote together, we were together, and when I wrote stuff on my own, I'd be there or find a way to to always be in that room. It was very inspiring for me. Yeah. Just a piano and um, and a guitar, you know. So um, so one day I got there early, and um, I was playing this thing, which I did not know what it was. So he walks in, opens the door, and I stop playing. He says, no, no, no. I said, I was listening to you from outside the room. So what are you playing? I said, well, I'm, I'm playing your song. He said, what song is that? And I show him the lead sheet. He says, that's not how the song goes, but I love what you're doing. So we'll make it the way you imagine it. And so we went into the studio and, 
you know, I put down five guitars, five different guitars, and they put the sounds together, and that's how uh, Baby I Love You uh, was born. May 24th, 1969, Baby I Love You hit the Billboard charts for the first time. Same day, Sugar Sugar was released. Hmm. But nobody, but, but it didn't hit the charts till the middle of July because nobody wanted to play it. So you get, you get this avalanche of songs that, that you, you helped create and, and, and be a part of, and, and then they become part of your life, you know? Talking about Sugar Sugar, so you wrote that for the Archies, and then and so you submitted that song to the Archies, right? Yeah, it was to Don Kirshner, who uh, you know had the Midnight Special, and and he was the musical supervisor for um, the Monkees, and they fired him because he gave them all these great songs, and I think uh, you know Mickey and Davey and Peter and and Mike really kind of wanted to start writing their own songs and. And all the hits they had were written by other songwriters, you know. And yeah. so um, when he became musical supervisor for the Archies, and basically it, it was going to be a, a half-hour Saturday morning cartoon show, he reached out to everybody that ever wrote a song. <laughs> and, yeah. and do you have a song for the Archies? You know, and so that's how that started. And you submit a song that you, you think you like, and then... Someone says, "Oh, I like this one." What happened with Jeff Barry? Like, what happened when you left there? Because you were you were doing songs. You were in New York, and then by the early seventies, I think you you left there, right? Didn't you go to L.A.? Yeah, you know what? Um, what I did not know was that, and did not did not really grasp right away, was that from the middle sixties on, there was an exodus. People were going to L.A. You okay. know, and um, so my contract was up with Steed Records. And um, I think they were about to shut down. And uh, I just felt for myself um, a need to, to refocus. So I, I went to L.A. And, and was able to find um, a new environment. I came to L.A. I, um, I started writing different songs. It just, yeah. It's just, it's, it's the growth of life. You know, and um, at the beginning, didn't have the kind of attention or success that my earlier life had, but that's just the way it is, you know. My two minutes and 30 seconds were kind of up, and so uh, maybe you can you can find another place to uh, to do what it is that you do. And I I fell into a, a great environment in Los Angeles. Um, I love the solitude of songwriting mm-hmm. and, um, and without feeling that I had to talk my songs, I just kept writing mm-hmm. and hoping that someone would uh, be interested in something I was writing and doing. And I never lost faith. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest singer, songwriter and Canadian legend, Sherry Ulrich. Sherry is well known for her time in Pied Pumpkin and the hometown band in the 1970s, but she's done much more in subsequent years. You're a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. You play violin, mandolin, piano, guitar, dulcimer. You pretty much jumped in and just tried everything. Yes, and that's probably the operative word because I've, I've been able 
by virtue of having a good ear, uh, I've been able to just pick up instruments. I'm I'm not a virtuoso on anything, really, but because of my ear, I do know how to serve the music. So you're uh, uh, what struck me, you're originally from San Rafael, California? Yeah, San Rafael, which is about yeah. uh, 20 miles north. I had to stop there for a second, not say kilometers. Uh, 20 miles north of San Francisco, uh, Marin yeah. County, which was just a fantastic place to grow up. So why did you graduate to Vancouver? Like, why didn't you sort of gravitate towards San Francisco and the music scene there? Uh, That's a very good question. Well, I was going to college um, near my home, so I was still living at home. And uh, I was very active in the peace movement. Of course, the Vietnam War framed everything for people who were my age at that time because it was our friends who were being drafted and our, our brothers and it was something that we were so passionate about in in huge numbers as youth. Yeah. Um, so I was active in in on a college campus, and then Kent State happened, where where um, four students were shot by the National Guard for yeah. being involved in a a peace march. So that scared the hell out of me, and I okay. felt like it was time to go. So I literally yeah. packed up my mother's car, which somehow I thought was mine, <laughs> <laughs> uh, packed it up with everything I thought I might possibly need to move to Canada. But my concept of Canada, uh, embarrassingly, um, I have to admit, was that it was just wilderness. And if I wanted okay. to move to Canada, I would just homestead. I would find land and I would homestead. So that's what I was oh, prepared wow. to do. Uh, so all of this was before I got involved in music. I had always been a consumer and always carried around a guitar and played my sister's flute and played the piano at home. But I did not consider for f- for a few more years after that that maybe this was something that I had an innate talent for. I was definitely a free spirit. It, it was the times. I mean, to be in the San Francisco Bay Area during the 60s and early 70s, uh, w- most of us were free spirits, and that encompassed a lot of things, but including, I think, for many people feeling like, okay, well, I'm going to go live here now, or I'm going to go get in the car and drive somewhere else. Yeah, what an interesting journey. And that, that I wondered about that because it kind of struck me that you would have you know, sort of pursued your career on the U.S. side of it, but then you came to Canada and you carved out your your career here, which worked out quite well for you, and we're happy to have you, of course. But uh, <laughs> but it was obviously. backwards. You're right. It was backwards, yeah. and, and I often felt like it should have been the other way around. I wasn't even doing shows particularly until I, I met uh, Rick Scott and Joe Mock for The Pied Pumpkin. Yeah. And The Pied Pumpkin taught me everything I know and believe about being present on stage and being present with the music. My role was was pretty much um, improvisational, uh, uh, yeah. mainly on the fiddle. And so I learned how to be in the moment, which is really everything as, as a musician. So much of my involvement and why I've been so productive is because of being a musician. You know, the songwriting came later and being a solo artist came later, but I love accompanying other people's music. Yeah, no, that's very cool. And and then out of that came, because I listened to Flying or Fear, Fear of Flying, that came out of the uh, Pie Pumpkin uh, 
group, right? Yes, Joe Mock <clears throat> wrote that song and and threw yeah. it in the wastebasket, and and Rick Scott retrieved it and and made him play it for him, and they played it for me at two in the morning by calling me yeah. up and not saying a word on the phone, just playing the song. So <laughs> that's how I first heard it, and then the first uh, performance of it was a live recording with the Pied Pumpkin. And oh, wow. and I mean this is a whole story in itself because that's what we that's what I sang every night on the road with Valdi when I was just part of his his backup band that was called the hometown band. We did one song every night and that was the song, and yeah. that's how I got introduced to to Canada because Valdi was playing two shows in 3,000 seat theaters all across the country. And I'd never been across mm. the country. I'd never experienced anything like that. And it was a, really, that's how my name got out into the world in Canada. So that, that song was, was probably your biggest tune back then. The one that opened some doors. So pivotal, so pivotal. Yeah. The Celtic feel like that, that kind of struck me, you know, a girl from California, where did you get the Celtic flavor? Well, all of my flavors really initially came from Pied Pumpkin, uh, okay. And of course, whatever I was consuming from the age of, I don't know, 12 or 13 until I started playing music, like all of that goes into one's bank of experience, I think, in terms of sounds. But really, it was the, the Pied Pumpkin that that I launched whatever concepts I had. And, and there was, because of the dulcimer and the the rhythmicality of it, if that's a word, um, yeah. it was easy to have those sorts of flavors. And of course, the fiddle always lends itself to that flavor as well. But I had no background personally in that. Ingrained in in being a musician or an artist is that sense of, I need to try and be as successful as I can possibly be. Yeah. I don't, you know, that's always mixed into all of those other factors about why we play music. and. So when I say I'll always question if it was the right thing to do, the Pied Pumpkin might have been massively successful mm -hmm. uh, because it was so unique and so spirited. And I chose the hometown band because we had uh, the a, a record deal and we had uh, the experience of this great uh, path that Valdi had laid for us of large, large gigs and large opportunities. And that was so compelling to me. Um, but on the other hand, massive fame is so fraught with with unhealthy elements that I can also, you know, be at peace to some degree that I wasn't massively successful. So when you did um, flying, it was a Pied Pumpkin tune, but you re-recorded. Is that a re-recording? Oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Probably a better version, right? Better production. Oh, so different. I mean, the the one I did with Pied Pumpkin was recorded live, so it okay. was that instrumentation, yeah. and this was a a full production. And as a matter of fact, one of my favorite memories was George Martin walking into the studio and we were mixing it, yeah. and standing behind the engineer, and of course, <laughs> scaring the hell out of him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> saying "Good job, boys." <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a big deal. That was a big deal. Yeah. 
So I was going to ask you about touring and stuff, because that's always a rub for, for some musicians, right? Did you tour a lot? Did you like touring? Like, were you constantly on the road? I have been constantly on the road um, for half a century, (laughs) (laughs) which I only realized when COVID hit and I stopped. I realized I had never stopped. Once you're touring, the wheels are constantly turning, literally and figuratively, because there's so much work to do advancing the the touring and advancing the shows. So it's it's a constant presence in one's life. Um, But in terms of actually being on the road, I do love being on the road. And and I love being in different cities. I love exploring them on foot or renting a bike or whatever it takes to sort of get out there. I love the connecting with friends that I have all over the place, and I only get to see them when I come to their town. Uh, all of that. I and of course I love performing. So yeah, there was a a pivotal uh, moment in my career in 1982 when I was signed to MCA Worldwide. And okay. Talk Around Town came out in Canada, and a few weeks later, it was coming out in the U.S. And yeah. Irving Azoff uh, came in as the new president and eviscerated the roster and 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 the A and R team. Um, and that was the my record did not come out in the U.S. When I discovered that m- music was something that I had a, an innate talent for. Uh, all I knew was that I wanted to keep making music, and I didn't know how that was going to unfold. And I had the good fortune of of some some good breaks and misfortune of some bad breaks. And but nothing was or is going to stop me from from making music. What kind of sacrifices did you make along the way? Do you think it was worth it? Like, if you could take a different path, would you oh, have done wow. things differently? Or wow, right that's a really interesting question. I have. I have never felt that I had to sacrifice anything. I, I may have sacrificed a couple of men along the way, <laughs> uh, and I do apologize to them. Um, but otherwise, I wouldn't call it a sacrifice. I mean, I, I, I didn't get the massive success that I assumed that I would get when I was young and foolish. Um, and I will always feel like perhaps I could have and should have made different choices along the way to, to be bigger and more successful. Um, and so that circles back occasionally to haunt me, but, but only yeah. mildly, because again, it's, it's one's quality of life that matters. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.